Just a content warning before we jump into today's episode. This episode does deal with discussions around family violence and may be triggering to some listeners. Shameless Media has made the decision to donate $500 to JIRA to support Aboriginal women experiencing violence, as well as a further $500 to the Dajua Foundation, stopping black deaths in custody. I remember reading like inspirational quotes on Instagram, like when I should have been sleeping after I'd finished all of TikTok, it said something like, some people talk to you when they've got free time, other people will free up their time to talk to you. And I was like, oh, that's cute. And then I thought of my sister, Nikki, because she was in that latter category. She would free up her time to call you and really annoyingly be like, how are you? How are you really? Like really softly spoken. And I'd just be like, what do you want? <laughs> what, what do you want? I'm busy. And like now, a little over six years after her death, I would do anything for one of those annoying phone calls. Mm. I want my phone to ring and have her name come up and have her ask me just annoying mundane questions. Hello and welcome to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with the incredibly intelligent and generous Tarang Chawla. Tarang is an Indian-born Australian lawyer, writer and anti-family violence advocate. In 2015, Tarang's younger sister and only sibling, Nikita, was murdered by her then-husband at the age of 23. She was a performer, choreographer and Monash University student whose life was stolen from her before she even had the opportunity to graduate from university. So, in the years since and while nursing overwhelming grief, Tarang has become one of the country's leading campaigners for gender equality and advocates for women and children's safety from family violence. In 2017, he was named a Young Australian of the Year finalist in Victoria and has written across topics including men's violence against women, discrimination, racism, masculinity and human rights. In this interview, we chatted to Tarang about everything from the warning signs of an abusive relationship, the grief that came with losing his sister and what he has learned about himself in the six years since losing Nikki. Here's Tarang. Tarang Chawla, welcome. We have had you in our sights for a while and we had one interview hiccup where we couldn't quite make it work, but we're finally here and we're very, very excited about it. We are here. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Tarang, we are starting where we always start and it is to ask you, what were you like as a kid? You moved to Australia at the age of one, I think. Is that right? Yeah, I was 18 months when we moved from India. First stop was Adelaide. Mum decided within six months of being there that this is not why we're raising a family. This is not what we're doing. Why is that? So for my parents, right, like they grew up in metropolitan cities in India. They were used to places being busy. Yeah. And they arrive, and I say Adelaide, it wasn't even Adelaide, it was Port Lincoln, right? So it's really pretty, it's picturesque. I don't know if you have listeners in Port Lincoln, but no disrespect. <laughs> shout out to those listeners. Yeah, shout out to Port Lincoln. No, it's, it's a beautiful part of the world. But I think my mum looked at it and just said to my dad, we can't do this. We have got to go somewhere vibrant, like something's got to be happening. There's right? stuff going on. Yeah. Stuff going on. And so we moved from Port Lincoln, pit stop in Adelaide, and then to Melbourne. And I was 18 months. And then spent childhood here. And it was a pretty conventional outer suburban childhood for any South Asian kid, which was like football in winter, mm. cricket in summer, homework in summer and winter. <laughs> And then, you know, my sister Nikki and I grew up side by side, four years apart. 
my grade three teacher, he didn't like me very much. He found me like the kid that speaks up out of class, the kid that's talking when you're not meant to. Bit of a nuisance. Yeah, yeah, a bit of a class clown. But in a way, it was a way to like fit in. Mm. It was kind of a way to not cop the racism, not cop the bullying. Was like if you could be the funny kid, if you crack jokes, then all of a sudden the cool group was like, yeah, he's okay. He's not going to get beaten up at recess today. Like maybe tomorrow, but definitely not today because second period you've cracked a gag at someone else's expense. Mm. As you grow older, you learn like, hang on, I don't, I don't want to punch down. I want to punch up. Like I'm not going to make fun of the other kid that they make fun of. And then eventually you start like fighting back against the bully and you find like a little posse and you kind of gang up against the people that were beating you up. What are the standout memories from your family? What was the family dynamic like? Our family dynamic was close. We were really close. We still are close. If anything, after my sister's death, my parents and I closer than we were before. Growing up, we didn't have a lot of money. My parents worked tirelessly dad would take on extra jobs at one point he had like a full-time job and he was running like a full-time business on the side just to be able to put Nikki and I through school like I didn't go to a private school but my sister did and it was like she went to private school but not with the life that you know you expect or you envision a lot of private school kids like I remember one time my sister coming home from school and she so innocently asked my parents at like 14 she's like dad how come we don't have a holiday house (laughs) Because all the other girls had one. And she just thought that's the way it is. Like you have a house down by the beach and you go there on your holidays. So we did holidays differently. You know, like we'd pack the car and there'd be like three eskies in the back full of food. And this is for like a day trip, mind you, like four people, three (laughs) eskies. And then we would meet all the other South Asian Indian families from my, my parents' friendship group. And you didn't really get to choose your friends. Like you just made friends based on who your parents were friends with. Their kids became your friends. And then we would like go play cricket, play footy, go swimming, do whatever. And there was, it was a different time, right? There was no like phones, there was no laptops. It was just you're bored. Okay, well, create fun. Like you couldn't, you couldn't get <laughs> just, apps. Just keep running around in circles. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us about Nikita as a child. Like what was she like? Annoying. Yeah. Like any kind of dynamic of an elder sibling and a younger sibling right like she's at once and sometimes I talk about her in present tense even though she's passed sometimes I think like she's at once was the most kindest person that I knew and yet somehow the most annoying I remember reading like inspirational quotes on Instagram like when I should have been sleeping after I'd finished all of TikTok it said something like some people talk to you when they've got free time other people will free up their time to talk to you and I was like oh that's cute and then I thought of my sister, Nikki, because she was in that latter category. She would free up her time to call you and really annoyingly be like, how are you? How are you really? Like really softly spoken. And I'd just be like, what do you want? <laughs> what, what do you want? I'm busy. Do you need money? Are you in trouble with mum? And it was never like she didn't need anything. She was never in trouble with mum. And like now, a little over six years after her death, I would do anything for one of those annoying phone calls. Mm. I want my phone to ring. And have her name come up and have her ask me just annoying, mundane questions. Basically like I'm in therapy, but with someone that is not paid to care about you. She just genuinely cares. And it's really interesting like after her death, hearing from people, people that I didn't even know, that have shared memories of just how profound her friendship was with them, what her presence in their life meant. I don't think we think about that about ourselves, right? And when people talk about like, kindness doesn't cost anything and it helps to be kind I think it really does you know and that's one thing that I try to take away from my sister now is that like when I'm angry or when I'm pissed off or I'm fed up I'm like fuck this shit I'm like well 
maybe I don't need to think like that. Maybe I can actually change the way that I'm looking at this situation. From a young age, she was really flexing that empathy muscle. Like she was really empathetic, really caring about other people's experiences. Take us to your teenage experience. You went to an all-boys high school, is that correct? Yeah, I went to an all-boys high school. So year seven, I went to a Christian independent school and that was the first experience of all-boys schooling that I had. And in hindsight, I look back and I think, yeah, I liked it. But then I also questioned, did I? The bullying was rife and... What I found strange, what I still find strange about it is that it was a Christian school. We're having all these debates in politics now because we've got a prime minister that's, you know, really outspoken about his faith and stuff. And it's like it was a Christian school but we had so much bullying. And there was all this like what would Jesus do? And it was like not what Jesus would do. Like it just didn't fit. But what about when we're talking about these all-boys experiences and you said there was a lot of bullying? I'm interested in someone like you now doing a lot of the work that you do and doing a lot of the activism that you do, thinking back to sort of how toxic masculinity, I don't know, maybe enveloped those school experiences. How do you look back on that? I think there's this perception that toxic masculinity only exists in private schools or elite school environments. So after year nine, I went to an all-boys school that was selective entry. So it was like elite in the sense that I was surrounded by really, really smart people or really accomplished people. But it wasn't necessarily privileged in the form of like money or class or anything like that. And certainly some of the kids, like they came from families that had next to no economic capital, but cure for cancer in their brain. There's just super smart people. And so I like to think of toxic masculinity as being less about the in environments where there's elitism and just being everywhere. It's just that the toxic masculinity in private schools is top shelf. It's just a bit better at being toxic. <laughs> Whereas like we had it. So we just exercised it in different ways. That's something that I think is so important for, you know, I'm 34 now, for men who grew up during the 90s, early 2000s, to reflect on who we were then, who we're trying to be and who we are now and who we want to be in the future. I don't think there's any problem in changing. I think there's a problem in kind of sticking to your views and doubling down once you've been informed and educated about how toxic and damaging they are. Mm. You know, like I, I grew up listening to, like at the time, other than Ministry of Sound, probably Dr. Dre's Chronic 2001 or whatever it's called is my favourite album. I listened to that the other day and I was like, holy fuck, what are these lyrics? This is proper misogyny and objectification of women and lyrics condoning rape and all of this stuff. And it was like, fuck, like I used to listen to this stuff every day, like Mm. blasting through my headphones happily. I reflect on it as being like it was there and it was what we consumed in popular culture, whether that was rappers from overseas or whether that was what was on TV on Channel 7 here, you know, the way storylines were shown in like even like Home and Away and Neighbours back then. It was just so much toxic stuff going on. And so like it was this constant undercurrent of toxic masculinity throughout my high school years where it was like if you were sporty and you were outgoing and you were this like dominant alpha male, you were fine. If you were in any way interested in, and I'm saying this in air commas, like feminine things, Like I was really interested in fashion when I was in high school. I'd buy like GQ magazine in like year nine and read it cover to cover. And so I was kind of different. People would be like, oh, is he gay? I think he might be gay. I was like, don't think so. Should it matter? You know, and it was really little stuff like that where people would question stuff like that. And then obviously like more overt stuff like being called a curry muncher. And that's an insult anyway. Like I always wonder like, yeah, it's delicious. Like what's your problem? (laughs) Were you very 
politically engaged at that time in your life? Like when you look to your future, it might be hard to think back to this point, but in year 11, year 12, you're looking to the future. What did you see for yourself? I didn't do that well at school, but it's all relative, right? Like I didn't do well at school compared to the expectations that my teachers had of me, my parents had of me. I just didn't have any expectation of myself because I didn't really know where I fit in and where I belong. I only got a sense of there being a future once I got to university. The regimented way that school worked for me, it was almost like the military. It was like, do this, then do this, then do this. And I was like, I don't like this. This is shit. Coming up after the break, the day that changed Tarung's family's lives forever. But first, a word from today's sponsor. In 2012, your little sister Nikita introduced you to someone that she called a friend, but she was also, I think at the time, romantically involved with, which you guys didn't know. Is that right? What are your memories of that meeting? So we knew, mum certainly knew. I remember that meeting. Imagine like you're meeting someone that someone you care about so deeply introduces you to and you're like, no, this person is just bad news. And you can tell that, like, your loved one, in this case my sister, is just so infatuated with them and thinks that they're the best thing ever and you're like, no. And the reason that we were all of that opinion was that we could see how low Nikki's self-esteem was at the time. Like, we could tell it had been eroded through, like, emotional and psychological abuse that she was at a point where you could say, oh, you look pretty today, and she'd just think you're the nicest person in the world. Her self perception and her self-image on the inside was so low but that's what it does right that's what emotional abuse does like people say oh how could calling someone a name hurt them well it can maybe not if it happens once and it's not part of a pattern sure they'll probably move past it but if it's a pattern of trying to degrade someone that's what emotional abuse is in domestic violence and domestic abuse relationships so that's what was going on for Nikki that like yeah she was killed in 2015 by her ex-partner or she's trying to leave him. But it didn't just happen out of the blue. It was like this constant eroding of sense of self until eventually, I think at a point, her own will to live was probably very, very low. Mm. And then she started getting herself back throughout 2014 and 2015. And the photographs of her and the experiences I have of her just before she passed, I can't think of anyone in my life being more vibrant and happier and having that kind of zest and enthusiasm for life. But that's what he did over years is he tried to erode her because he felt so bad about himself and he didn't deal with his own shit and he just projected it onto her. When you're having those first thoughts that this person isn't good for my sister who I love and I don't think she is her happy, normal, flourishing self when she's in his presence, what do you do with that information? Like do you try and broach that with her Do you talk to your parents about it? Like what were the conversations about the dynamic? Yeah, it was a really tricky time, right? Because I remember my parents thinking, do we intervene? What do we do? And them asking me, you know, like what's the right way to approach this? And I'm a fairly like liberally minded guy. I'm just like, yeah, do what you want. If you're not hurting anyone else, it's not against the law, do it. But I'm just like, let the other person make their own decision. So I was probably the most hands-off In terms of that, I try to be hands-off in most things, particularly when it comes to like women's agency and autonomy. It's like, why do we live in a society where things are the way they are around women's treatment? One of the regrets I have, though, is that had I been different, maybe I could have done something. 
I mean, I rationalized that through a lot of therapy, you know, where it's like if someone wants to take another person's life, it's kind of hard to stop them. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Like you can't blame yourself for someone else's actions. So I sat with that guilt. I still get guilty about it. I still feel a sense of shame. But I spoke to Nikki. I spoke to her and I expressed myself. Because initially, I think my sister's thoughts were that, you know, my mum spoke to her and my dad spoke to her. And she was really close to my dad. She was close to mum, like really close to mum. But her and dad were just super fond of each other. And dad... I think he leveled with her and he spoke to her and then she trusted me, Nikki trusted me. So she came to me and she asked me like what my thoughts were and that's the way I wanted it to be and I think I wouldn't change that because I wouldn't want to be the type of brother or the type of person that would intervene in another person's life. I think that happens, I say it happens in South Asian communities but I reckon it happens everywhere, right? Like older brothers are, I think are quite protective yeah. of, of particularly and younger sisters. Some people have it as like, some men have it as a badge of honour, right? Yeah, like I've got friends that we disagree on this. They have bro codes around the romantic lives of their sisters and stuff. I say to them, like, let's rationalise it. Okay, so it's your sister. Wouldn't you want her to be with someone that you trust and, yeah. like, and, you like. and, and you like and respect? And they go, yeah, but you're my friend. And I'm like, it's hypothetical, this hasn't happened. But I'm like, yeah, but that doesn't add up to me because it's like here's some other guy that you don't know, wouldn't it? Right? And they're like, no, but it's weird. I'm like, what's weird it's about it? It's a weird it? possessiveness yes. over the women in their own lives that they think that those women on some level in some unusual way belong to them, which I've yeah. never quite understood because yeah. I have a brother who I would say is very similar in his approach to you. Tom would never try to impose rules on who we can and can't see or would ever think that way about our dynamic. Yeah. So for me, I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't go back and be like, I wish I'd done this differently or I wish I'd approached the situation a little bit differently because Nikki came to me and then I knew that she was comfortable speaking to me. And I think that's the way it should be, that the woman should feel comfortable coming to the male figure rather than the male figure just being like, oh, here's my unsolicited, unasked for advice, but this is what you should do and this is what's right for you. Even my dad didn't have that. I think my mum had a bit of that with Nikki at the time, like woman to younger woman and mum and daughter being like, this is the way it should be, not has to be. And I think that's because she felt really strongly about it. And in the worst possible way, she was proven right. Like no one wants to say, I told you so. Absolutely. I remember like a conversation after my sister was murdered that I had with mum. Something mum actually said was, I wish he'd just left her alive. Even if she'd been in a purely vegetative state, my mum was like, I would have loved and cared. I would have done everything anyone asked of me to ensure that she had the best quality of life. I didn't even know how to respond. Like, how does anyone respond to that? Like that level of affection for someone and that selfless love where it's like, I'll do anything that's asked of me. But, I mean, it's all wishful thinking, right? It's incredible love and she sounds like an incredible mother. You did say that the last kind of year or so of Nikki's life was when she was the most vibrant. She was doing incredible stuff with her dance studio. She was seemed to be kicking goals. What do you remember of sort of the first few days of 2015? Like were you worried for her or were you thinking Nikki's in a good space? I wasn't worried for her at all. I was excited for her. She had like planned a trip to Europe. She was doing what she felt she was put on earth to do. You know, you asked about her in childhood. From the age of like three or something, Nikki started dancing. I was a big fan of Michael Jackson growing up. So I would watch Michael Jackson on TV and I'd try and dance like that and she'd just copy me. She'd be like three or four and actually be good and I'd be (laughs) like seven or eight and be not very good at all. And then I think my mum saw that she had this kind of 
talent for grace and movement and just the way she would carry herself. It was at once like confident yet graceful. It was like strong but also kind of soft and gentle. And so what mum saw was this kind of potential. And she was like, oh, she's not really interested in school and study and all those kinds of things, but she's got to do something. So mum asked, like, do you want to do dance? And enrolled her in dance. And like her whole childhood was Indian classical dance. I remember going to so many concerts or like at Fed Square and then other spots in like Carlton and then Monash Uni, like the hall there, like every year there was a concert. It'd go for like four hours. <laughs> I hated it. Yeah. Like after like an hour of Indian classical, I was like, nah, I'm done. I'm so done. And I remember when I got my peas and then I was like, I'm leaving. Like I've got a car now. I just walk out and leave. But She loved that stuff. And then when she found a way to combine it with Bollywood and modern funk and that kind of stuff, I thought that was cool because it took elements of her classical training and then it made them, for me, more palatable. But it was like you said, she was kicking goals. So she had started her own dance academy at 18 and then that was like flourishing. She started studying at uni straight out of school and she studied accounting for a year and I've never seen someone so depressed with their course and then I think she said to mom, I can't do this. And mom was like, well, what do you want to do? You can't do nothing. Like, you've got to choose something. And she was like, I think I want to do performing arts. And it was really competitive. So she put in like a portfolio, got a few references from like theatre studies teachers and stuff. And she got into the program at Monash. And she was doing that and she had like one subject to go. And so the start of 2015, I just saw like all this potential. Everything was coming together. She'd worked with Michael Bublé's opening act, Naturally 7. And that actually came about because... We went as a family to see Bublé perform at Rod Laver. So he's performing and then his opening act, uh, an acapella group called Naturally 7, they were like out the front of Rod Laver after. And Nikki just walked up to them <laughs> and she's like, hi, I'm Nikita Chola. I'm a choreographer, <gasps> a producer and dancer from Melbourne. And they're like, hey. I think she was like 16 or 17. Wow. And I was just like, man, what a precocious kind of little teenager. I love that yeah. so much. Yeah. So she just like straight up was like, I'm going to lean in a million percent and just did it. She kind of developed that relationship and then started working with them and then other groups and released her first video clip that she produced and choreographed for them two or three weeks before she was killed. And then when they toured in 2015, they invited us to the show and they performed Gone Too Soon like in memory of her. And it was just like as a brother, when you have a relationship with your sibling, you know them when they've like crap their pants you know them at their lowest point in life to hear about their highest points in life from other people Mm. and what they meant to them that's cool sitting there it was like i get goosebumps just thinking about it now like years on because it was like man like you meant you meant something to other people i mean it's pretty incredible that your sister had such a profound effect on so many she was 23 when she Mm. died it was the 9th of january 2015 what happens in the days and weeks after news like that is communicated to you, your mum and your father? Mm. Yeah, what a good question. What happens? Every emotion possible. You have an utter sense of shock and confusion. Grief in terms of sadness doesn't really kick in straight away. It's almost like you run on like adrenaline. The Victoria Police came to my parents and they delivered the news. My mum and dad drove from their place to my place to tell me. And I mean, I still can't believe that anybody let my parents get behind the wheel of a car. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, you I'm should just not... shocked that you just said that they drove. Yeah, like they shouldn't be allowed to drive, no. right? And I know that campaigners, myself, many, many others, we've talked about these sorts of issues where it's just like 
base level training for like local police when Surprise it comes to domestic police, violence. Yeah. yeah, put them in the back of their car and take them. Yeah, to... although it could have been the fact that my parents are pretty proud, right? Then so they might have been like, "No, we got this." They didn't got this. So yeah, mum and dad drove. 20, 25 minutes to my place. I still don't know how they did it and how they didn't crash on Punt Road. And then they told me. And I remember waking up that morning to the sound of my, like, apartment buzzer and just thinking, fucking hell, who's this? And I look at my phone and there's, like, 72 missed calls or something. And it's mum and dad. They tell me this news. First thing mum said is he killed her. And then my dad didn't say anything. He just, like, nodded. And then I put it together And then my mum just like crashed down into the corner of my grey sofa and just like burst into tears. She's crying. And then I'm like scrambling to put tissue box on the coffee table and then looking at dad like someone tell me like what the fuck's going on. And it was just like this whole kind of surreal thing where like I've probably just for my own self-preservation blacked out 20 or 40 minute periods from that morning. But then I remember... Dad putting a Victoria Police card on the table and then being like, turn it over. And it had like some guy's name. It was like head of homicide. And it was like, I guess that's life now, right? And I looked at my parents. I had this like split second, like I looked at them and I just thought, they need me. I need to find a way to step up. And I think I went to the bathroom. I just splashed cold water on my face and I walked out and was just like, okay, what needs to happen? First couple of days, I just switched into like, What do I need to do to ensure that my parents don't fall over and die from shock or sadness or whatever's going on? The thing that gets me is that, like, when a woman is in a relationship where there's abuse and violence, so much of society is, like, trying to hush it up and cover it up. It's like, don't talk about it or, you know, there's so much shame or stigma attached to it. Or you don't want to be a victim, people would say. And I think we've come a long way, particularly when you think about, like, Brittany Higgins and Grace Tame and the conversations, like us talking about it now. I don't think that happened just a few years ago. Whereas this happens, right? Nikki dies. And then all of a sudden, it's public. Everything about her is public. Her whole life is like just there for people to dissect. And either the day of or the day after, I get this message. One of them said, what did the dumb bitch think that he would do? And I was like, shocked to have read that and then other messages you know and all of them like blaming her in various ways and so few people were like why did he pick up a meat cleaver and decide to butcher her that's a choice her wanting to leave him is somehow worse than what he did and I think that's what we talk about when we talk about victim blaming and that's at an extreme level you know but it happens with like survivors of sexual violence or rape where it's like what was she wearing or why was she out late or it's like who gives a shit was she drinking yeah what were you know and how much did she have to drink like as a follow-on from was she drinking what time was she out till everything right and like i feel weird i just want to acknowledge i feel weird saying this to two women because it's like these are your lives but it's just like for people like me it's that's dumb like that's just a dumb question to ask like we should actually address Who makes the choice to do that? Absolutely. And what I found interesting about when I was reading back through a lot of your old interviews and I read this interview that you did with Mumbrella and you said not only was a lot of the victim blaming happening but also reporters and journalists got their hands somehow on your phone number. People were calling you, trying to get information from you. And what I noticed in that article with Mumbrella is there's like there's no one – 
advising you or protecting you from the invasion in a time like this. Like you're already dealing with the trauma of losing your sister, the trauma of how you've lost your sister, and then the trauma of it being public and people hounding you. Like how did you deal with people just knocking on your door trying to get info? I mean, I had my ways of dealing with it, but on like the broader issue, right, there is no way to deal with it. There's nothing there where people are like, this is what you do or any support for you. It's just you're basically on your own. What happened with us, and that's why like when I saw my parents' faces, I think it clicked. All of a sudden, this was like after I'd spoken to the police. I think I asked them, like, what happens now? This police officer, being the head of homicide, he got it. He was like, so the news will probably call you. We don't give your details out, but they will probably call you and want comment from the family. And I said, what do we do? And he said, it's up to you. Like, you decide how much you want to engage. If you want to talk to them, we can help you with what to say and what not to say. But generally, most families don't want to talk to them. The fact that My family moved here when I was an infant and he was born here in Fitzroy, Melbourne. And so, like, I think growing up as part of, like, the North Indian and and broader Indian community and my parents being really, like, well-connected and meeting people and getting involved in things, so many people had a vested interest. And unlike me, Nikki was one of the family members that people really gave a shit about, like, broadly. They were like, Nikki's just a darling sweetheart, right? Whereas me, it was like, oh, he's a bit opinionated. Like, he doesn't, like, he doesn't really follow the conventional path, whatever. Like, he's okay. And they almost like me out of respect for my dad or my mum, yeah. right? Whereas, like, with Nikki, it was like, as their own person, people were like, how is she and stuff? So Nikki dies and then there's all this kind of, like, attention from extended family and friends and then all this attention from the media. Both were difficult to deal with in their own way because extended family were like overbearing and wanting to help, but it came from a good place and then the media wanted a scoop or a story. And until today, so six and a bit years after Nikki's murder, only one journalist has ever said, you know, I contacted you that day and I think I owe you an apology and I'm sorry for being really like invasive. I'm friends with her now. Because I just think that that's a sign of a person who's self-reflected and actually read Mumbrella or read something and actually thought about the perspective from the victim survivor or their family's perspective. So I have profound respect for her. Others were just sending me pictures of Nikki and being like, this is what we're publishing. Do you have an issue with this? And they're just like, they, and it happens to everyone. Like they go on the person's Facebook and then they find pictures. And on the one hand, the fact that Nikki's death got any coverage is a bit of an anomaly because women of colour, women with disabilities, trans women, gender diverse women or gender diverse people, those those groups don't get coverage. And similarly, when women are attacked in public, that makes news. But women in their homes, where they should arguably feel safest, where anyone should feel safe, when women are killed in their homes... And when women are killed by the man in their life, there's like a stain on that woman. There's like this social stigma that she deserved it. And I got messages telling me that. Or that like there's questioning about what she did that triggered his outburst or triggered his anger. And they don't think that, hang on, maybe this is a pattern of possession that escalated to the point where he was like, well, if I can't have you, then nobody can. Instead of actually framing the problem as what it actually is, They look at it as this completely different thing. Mm. The media is just this kind of strange beast where they contacted me all day on the day of Nikki's murder. And once one outlet had my phone number, they must have shared it amongst themselves. And I just shut down. You know, I didn't say anything. And then like two days later, one of my friends who was living in Singapore at the time, he came over. When he walked in, 
I made eye contact with him and that's when I hugged someone and I just started crying mm. in front of like everyone. And that was the first time that any kind of emotion came out. And then after that, maybe it's my childhood, I, I don't know. But humor's always been a coping mechanism for me. I love comedy, everything about it. I love comedians. I love hearing about new comedians. I like the power of humor in any situation. And so I was just making a lot of pretty dark jokes probably, a lot of humor to cope. You know, like on the day of Nikki's funeral, I remember making a couple of jokes at her funeral sitting next to mum and mum kind of doing that thing where they try and shut up the kid and they're like, you know, <laughs> scrambling, like trying to yeah. like physically trying to like shut them up by just like scrambling over their person. And I think mum's thing was like, of all the days, today's the day that you can't put a smile on my face. If anything, because it doesn't look right. That was just the thing, right? That was like the family dynamic of we would always try to find positivity and humour and everything growing up. And even now, you know, I think of Nikki less in terms of how she died, but how she lived. And that's the sad thing about how victim survivors are reported on, particularly women whose lives are taken from them, is that so much of the news coverage just focuses on the crime and on the circumstances of their death. And I would much rather hear about who they were and what they meant to the people around them. Mm. Because what I've discovered meeting so many people who've lost a loved one is that the people whose lives are taken and the people taken from us, they're some of the kindest people in the world. I think there's something to it that they're the ones who can see good in even people that have the capacity to take another person's life. Mm. Like when we were like, he's not a good dude, Nikki was like, no, I think he could be. A lot of people would just be like, no, nah. but she saw some good in him. Mm. This is a really broad question and you can tackle it in whatever way you wish. But when it comes to men's violence against women and discussions of men's violence against women, what do you think needs to be done better? Look, there's a lot. There's a lot that needs to be done. I think that one of the things, and to put it in context of what's happening at the moment around the debates, you know, with everything in and around Parliament House, it's the March for Justice that happened not that long ago that sort of framed a lot of this debate and has made it part of the national news conversation in a way where I'm betting the government doesn't like it, the federal government, that, like, it's not going away. Like, every day there's more news about it. And usually any issue that affects women will make news for a bit and then go away. And there's like bubbles on the internet, say on Twitter, there's activist groups, there's whole sectors that care about it, there's members of the community, but the mainstream doesn't engage with it. But the tide is changing. And so for me, one of the main things, and people disagree with me on this and that's okay, but when you have political leadership in the public eye that models the kind of respect and behaviour towards equality that I'd like to see, I know most women would like to see in society, when you have that being modelled, I think that starts the domino effect of things changing. Women's legal services, community legal centres, all of that stuff is chronically underfunded. Aboriginal women are dying at the rate of 10 times more than the rest of the Australian population. They're 34 to 35 times more likely to be hospitalised as a consequence of intimate partner violence. And for the record, this is not being done exclusively by Aboriginal men. There's this idea that if it's happening to Aboriginal women, that Aboriginal men are doing it. That's not the case. So there's issues of like systemic and structural racism and misogyny and intersectional factors playing in when it comes to different communities. Certainly happened with Nikki as well. But ultimately, when you have leadership, other things follow. When you have a leader who actually, like if it's a man, he gets up and he says, I understand that women are angry. I'm hearing that they're angry rather than someone that says, oh, I spoke to my wife and she explained it to me and now I get it. I've always believed that you shouldn't have to have someone in your life tell you how important it is to care. 
Like you care by virtue of being a human being. And so I think for me it comes down to there needing to be a shift in leadership. Now whether that's that it necessarily has to be a woman who has the top job, I'm all for it. I would like to see it. We haven't had a female leading the country, a woman leading the country since Julia Gillard. I'd love to see more women in positions of power because then the flow-on effects happen. When we see with like women's sport, young girls and young boys as well, they look at women playing sport and go, oh, that's something girls can do. Because when I grew up, there was no women's sport on TV. It wasn't funded at all. No one watched it because there was it wasn't shown. So for me, it was like all my sporting idols were men because that's all that I could see. It wasn't like I was actively discriminating. I didn't have a choice. In terms of dressing men's violence against women, it requires a whole kind of structural shift. It's happening all over Australia, I think. So I watch maths. Never watched it before this year, but I love it. I'm so hooked. (laughs) And there was a scene on one of the episodes where a guy swore at someone's partner. I saw this on TikTok last night, actually, and he was called out for it. Yeah, 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 he was called out for it, right? And I thought that wouldn't happen previously. So there's like kind of different perceptions, different bubbles around like thought on this issue that like, oh, that stuff promotes toxic behavior and we shouldn't have it. And I understand that. Like I take that point. But stuff like that's also the most watched content in the country. I looked that up to make sure because I got into a discussion with someone on Twitter because I was tweeting relentlessly about 30 tweets a minute, like just typing furiously, (laughs) like this is happening, this is happening, like a blow by blow of what's happening on maths. And someone was like, why do you care? And I was like, because people care. People watch this stuff. And I think addressing men's violence against women goes beyond simply the scope of like what the sector is doing or what politicians are funding or not funding. But the core foundation of the role and representation of women at all levels of society, it's really true that you can't be what you can't see. The longer that women's representation is sidelined, whether that's the way that women are portrayed on red carpets at award ceremonies, you know, and objectified just by virtue of what they're wearing, or whether that's women being paid less, again, in the entertainment industry for like the roles that they take Mm. on. The gender pay gap, you know, there's a report that it'd take 26 more years, a quarter of a century in a developed country like Australia for that gender pay gap to completely be eradicated. Mm. So like there is a fundamental problem, I think, with the way that women are viewed and I think that this actually includes the way some women view other women yeah I think hugely yeah and I think that's one mistake I probably made up until maybe last year is not assuming that we could ever be part of the problem but we absolutely are part of the problem it's just so insidious everywhere trying I do want to know though talking to you about this and hearing you a be so knowledgeable but b be so passionate about the space the activist space that you're in now how do you think Nikita would feel knowing that this is the work that you're doing and these are the things you're talking about I really like that question, actually, and I'll tell you why I like how do you think Nikki would feel is that I think people assume they're like, oh, Nikki would be so proud of you, and she probably would be. But the reason I say that she'd feel proud or feel any positive emotion towards me is that, like, simply by virtue of existing, she loved me as a sibling, as a brother. So, like, I didn't have to do anything. I didn't even have to be kind to her, and she still loved me back. If anything, I regret not being a better brother while she was alive because I probably, like, I wasn't that great. I think she'd feel a sense of pride. And the thing for me, though, is that, like, people say that to my mum. They're like, oh, you must be so proud of your son. And do you know my mum's response to that is, yeah, but I'm proud of my daughter too. 
And so for me, like, it's this thing about we always celebrate men's achievements. I get awards for things that women have been doing way before I was born. And so for me, sometimes it's like, I don't want this. Give it to somebody else. Give it to somebody who deserves it, whose voice isn't amplified. It's almost like a duty to do what I do. I had the privilege of going to Melbourne Law School. I've been surrounded by really, really smart people. Some of them go on to just work in the investment banks, make shitloads of money and do whatever really rich people do. And I love that. Like if I go to Gucci and just not ask how much stuff costs, <laughs> I would do that. Yeah, absolutely. Like 100%. And I think you both would as well. Like can we just... No yeah. doubt. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But at the same time, it's kind of this thing where it's like sometimes it gives me a sense of unease that like men's achievements are so lauded and, and so like put on a pedestal and women have to work so much harder and do so much stuff. And then be told that, like, they got some kind of active discrimination against men in order to get where they got to. And it's just like, fuck off, man. That's not the way it works. But I would also argue it takes a lot more for you to talk about this than it does for either of Michelle and I. Like, I think that you are selling yourself short, surely, in this conversation to say that maybe it does give you that sense of unease because you put so much out there for the better of the world. And knowing what you've been through, it just can't be easy. Yeah, I mean, it took me a while to acknowledge that and it took me a while to understand that self-care goes beyond lush bath bombs. Self-care can look like just showing up to your psychologist appointment when you don't want to go. It can look like meal planning so that you eat remotely healthy food instead of getting Uber Eats. I can see Michelle kind of like laughing like I'm Because I'm not doing guilty. any of these things. It can also just mean <laughs> talking nicely to yourself. And acknowledging yes. the good that you're doing. Yeah, 100%. That's such a great point because the thing that I've realised, and I do this, right, particularly like around my mental health and stuff, is that the things that we tell ourselves about ourselves are so much unkinder and so much crueler than the things that we would say to other people. And when you think about the stuff that other people say to other people, it's like, fuck, what are they saying to themselves? There's obviously some hurt going on in order to hurt other people. And so it's like, for me, it comes down to that. I've learned over the journey of six and a bit years so far, and I don't know how much longer I'll keep being as active in this way around campaigning, but you've got to look after yourself. And there was a period of like two or three years initially where I didn't. I slept like four hours a night. In a way, it was like a way of processing grief slash an addiction. Mm. And so now it's like, how do I balance it? If we're talking about what would Nikki want, Nikki would want me to also live my life in a way. And to that end, like during COVID, I got a dog and her name's Habibi and I love her. And, yeah. <laughs> we have a lot of similarities going on. <laughs> yeah. Our last question, with all of this in mind, what is success to you? How do you define success in your own life? Oh, wow. What a great question. It always chops and changes, but to me, it's around happiness, you know, happiness. Because I know for me, like I could go buy a new pair of loafers and be like, sick, I feel good. But really, do I feel that much better? Yes, I do. No. <laughs> uh, so for me, it comes down to that. And it's taken me a while to get there. And, and I, I think it clicked for me in around, I think it was October 2019. And I went to Brisbane. I went there because I, I won this award, which was the Young Community Achiever of the Year Award. And it was like this Indian Australia like business awards thing. And given how outspoken I am in my political views and given the way that political tensions run, I didn't ever expect to be recognised in and around that kind of conservative environment. And so I got this award and I bring it home. It's this epic trophy. Like it's real nice. Like you know like the Oscars look good, like yeah. the trophy? It's like that. Like it's got gold on it and it's oh, just like it's fancy. fancy. It's yeah. fancy, yeah. <laughs> and so like my mum like puts it on top of Nikki's piano and it sits there and stuff. And then my mum said to me, are you happy? And it wasn't about the award. It was just, are you actually happy? 
And to me, it clicked that like whether you do some work and you get recognized for it, whether it's a dream to like, like the two of you start a podcast and then develop a media company. It's like along the way, are you trying to be happy? Because it's not like you can get the next thing. You always get the next thing. And that's the constant thing for me. Success looks like one part of me playing devil's advocate with the other to go, are you happy? And that other person whose voice is quieter but more important being like, yeah, I am. If I can do that 80% of the time, that's success. Tarang, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We are incredibly grateful for what you do and massive fans of you. And it's been a huge privilege to be able to sit here and hear about Nikki and your family and everything. So thank you so much. She sounds like the best person. She was pretty good, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. She's incredible. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this incredibly special episode of Shameless in Conversation with Tarung Chawla. To follow Tarung's journey, follow him on Instagram at Tarung Chawla. If you missed last week's announcement, this is actually the last In Conversation we'll be posting in the Shameless feed for a little while. We are resting the In Conversation format to make way for a new project that we're calling Scandal. It will be dropping every Monday morning from next week. We have been so grateful to the more than 100 media personalities, activists, influencers and performers who have joined us on this show since 2018. From Julia Gillard to Priyanka Chopra Jonas, Jamila Jamil to Zoe Foster Blake, Hamish Blake to Dylan Alcott, Celeste Barber to Grace Tame and of course Tarung today. We have absolutely adored hosting every single person and being able to have such varied conversations on this podcast. If you did enjoy this episode in particular, there is no doubt there are countless others you will like. If you just head to shamelessmediaco.com, you can actually have a scroll through our entire back catalogue. As I said, more than 100 episodes, so you'll find something that absolutely suits your interests. There will also be more interview content coming your way very, very soon from Zara and I. It will sit in a new channel and we will tell you about it as soon as we can. Until that day comes, though, we both hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. We hope you enjoy Scandal. We'll be back in your ears on Thursday. Bye, guys. Oh, hi, it's Annabelle Lee and Louis Hansen here. We are your hosts of Everybody Has a Secret. Woo! Woo! We are here essentially just to let you know that we drop episodes every week. Now, every damn Friday morning, we are in your ears. That is so exciting. What a time <laughs> to be in your ear holes. So essentially, each episode, we unpack the real life secrets of our listeners. So this is for everyone who loves, you know, just a little bit of gossip in mm-hmm. their lives, which let's be real, Annabelle, is all of us. It's absolutely all of us. Don't lie. You all love gossip. So if you want to listen to to our show, please do head to your favourite podcast app and listen now. See you there. Bye.